Okay, welcome to our experience. My name's Chad Wurz. I'm Chief Executive at ASCP, joined by my partner, Tom Hansel, for another one of our podcasts. This time, we're going to talk a little bit about maybe a, a provocative topic, boxed warnings. Box warnings exist for safety, but they have but have they jumped the shark. They're literally an outline box on a drug product's prescribing information sheet. They came into practice to highlight high risks in medications approved and on the market. We now have box warnings that aren't specific necessarily to an individual drug, but a class of drugs or to disease states. And we've created some that sound a little bit like double talk, which can create additional risk. We are very happy and fortunate to have Jeremiah Kelly join us. Jeremiah is a partner at Venable, which is a DC-based lobbying firm. His practice centers on helping companies navigate the complexities of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration's regulations of drugs, biologics, medical devices, and combination products. He helps companies from bench to bedside. He supports companies along the development of the commercialization pathway from preclinical clinical and pre-market applications for FDA's approval, licensure, clearance, or authorization of medical products to post-market compliance. Prior to joining Venable, Jeremiah served as the chief of the FDA Regulatory Law Division in the Office of the Staff Judge Advocate, U.S. Army Medical Research and Development Command. Jeremiah, welcome. Hey, great to be here with you, Chad and Tom. Thanks. All right, let's jump into it. Maybe, Jeremiah, the, the best place to start is a little bit about your history and then a little bit about the history of these warnings. When did they start? How'd they come about? Yeah, sure, absolutely. Well, as you mentioned, I'm a partner here at the law firm of Venable LLP here in Washington, D.C. It's a, it's a national law firm. We've got offices all over the country, and it's a full-service firm. And the great part of, about being a food and drug lawyer here in, in this robust FDA group in DC is that we really do get to help companies develop medical products. We're really excited. I'm not sure I could practice any other kind of law <laughs> except being a food and drug lawyer because we enjoy helping companies deliver medical breakthroughs for the public health. I also was at the FDA for, for eight years, actually from, from 01 to 08, which is actually very relevant for our topic today because that was actually a period of significant evolution in FDA's use of black box warnings. And just to give you a little bit of background, agency has always reviewed new drugs for safety and efficacy for very specific intended uses, right? So most of you guys will be tracking and your audience is tracking that really FDA's approvals are a risk-benefit calculus, right? Do the known benefits of the product outweigh the known risks for that specific indication for this class of patients? And all of that material is, is essentially adjudicated by the agency and reduced to what we call a, an FDA-approved labeling or prescription drug labeling. And that's all, of course, compliant with the statutes in play here, which would be the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. And our regulations at 21 CFR 201 kind of lay out what is a compliant label. So the label has to include indications and uses, dosage and administration, dosage form, strength, contraindications. But the use of the boxed warning, we know that it's a black box warning, but it's really just called a boxed warning, emerged in the 70s to highlight serious and life-threatening risks for patients. And so if you've ever handled an FDA prescription drug label, you'll see literally a black box with bold black text that are highlighting the most serious risks associated with the product. And with regard to the history, the agency had used these this particular label tool, in addition to the rest of the label, to communicate to prescribers and to patients. 
where this really got interesting was in the mid-2000s, where you began to have the COX-2 inhibitor drugs manifest serious adverse health consequences post-market. We call those post-market safety concerns. Those are very serious concerns that emerge after the product's been licensed. If you sit back and think about how much money goes into your three phases of clinical trial development, even with all of that effort, you're not going to find all of the safety concerns about a product. To run a trial powered high enough to discern every safety signal would be infeasible. It's just too expensive, and drug development's already too expensive. So there's no doubt that after products are approved, these safety risks emerge. The COX-2 inhibitor drugs like Celebrex and Vioxx come to mind. The selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, the SSRIs as well, come to mind as products that had serious post-market safety concerns. So not only does FDA adjudicate the risk-benefit calculus at approval, the COX-2 inhibitor examples and SSRI examples highlight how the agency deals with ongoing post-market safety concerns, and it's a constant risk-benefit analysis, right? It's not stagnant and it's not fixed in time. It's going to be reevaluated based on the epidemiological data that is collected by the agency's Office of Post-Market Drug Safety. And there's an entire team within the agency that monitors these signals. And what was really important about the mid-2000s period was not only were, did you see an increase in the use of black box warnings, but it was also connected prior to 2007 with something called a risk map, risk management plan. Risk maps became codified in the law in the Food Drug Administration Amendments Act of 2007. We call them REMS now. We just love to come up with way cooler acronyms for things, you know. They're called risk evaluation and mitigation strategies. So oftentimes, you'll see a black box warning where there are serious and life-threatening risks that are associated with either a risk evaluation and mitigation strategy, where the agencies decided that this whole framework has to be applied to the management of the drug. And sometimes you'll see black box warnings on products that have gone through an expedited approval mechanism like fast track. So that's just to give you a quick summary of the history of the use of black box warnings, but they're definitely on the increase. And I'm also tracking to there's there's really been a larger push to do class-wide black box warnings, which has caused, of course, some consternation among product developers. Yeah, and and I think that's one of the questions that we'll dig into deeper. I think just by nature of the membership of ASCP and the pharmacists that work in older adult settings and with medically complex patients, these become pretty important. These become ways that we can look at risk from the perspective of what we feel like are vulnerable populations. We're taking care of older adults. We know that there's a sensitivity to medications in general. And these these warnings that are highlighted become really an important part of what we do on a daily basis to manage medications. You brought up the idea of classes versus drugs. I think many of us that have grown up in a clinical practice, whether it's a you're a physician, a nurse, or a pharmacist, we like to talk about the specific drug. How does this specific drug work? And I'll pull the antipsychotic class. It is certainly the one that gives us the most attention in skilled nursing facilities and with our older adults because they are dangerous medications and have to be managed. 
But they carry a black box warning that says increased mortality in elderly patients with dementia-related psychosis. And it comes from some studies and some data, maybe from, I guess, now close to 20 years ago, looking at how antipsychotics were used in the VA system in individuals with dementia-related psychosis. Good data, good information, but really about a particular group of medications that were studied. Since then, innovative new medications have come out. They have different mechanisms of action, but they still fall under that broad category of antipsychotic based on you know, what they're treating, and they get captured in this black box warning, which for the most part, you know, to your point, I think, or maybe to the point that you're going to make, being extra safe isn't a problem. You know, highlighting something and saying, hey, this is something to be concerned about is a part of practice that, that we can deal with. But when those medications come out, for people with the condition that is identified in the box warning, then it becomes confusing. So with that regard, like with Pimavanserin, which uh, is Nuplazid, its black box warning has been adjusted to say that it is an antipsychotic and increase the risk of elderly people who have dementia-related psychosis. As long as you're using this for Parkinson's disease psychosis, you're okay so it's kind of this double talk, if that makes a lot of sense, where it yeah. says, if you're using it for what it's indicated for, even if they have dementia-related psychosis, you're okay. But you can't use it in people that have dementia-related psychosis. So it creates this weird sure. clinical yeah. issue. No, and of course, I'll disclaim practicing medicine and practicing pharmacy here, but I think you're putting your finger really on what makes the agency's use and deployment of the boxed warning so difficult is that, again, drug approvals are a specific risk-benefit calculus, typically for a specific drug. But I could look to, for example, the black box warnings on SSRIs, or I could look at black box warnings on for some of the opioid countermeasures. These are necessary warnings, but if a product's got a differentiated mechanism of action or a different route of administration or formulation, that would suggest that its risk profile, its risk-benefit profile, is somewhat of an outlier from the class, then what you've done is you've labeled, you know, individual constituent members of the class with what is now applied across the board, and you've lost some of the variation in communicating risks and benefits to, to doctors, uh, prescribers, and patients that really is supposed to be the function of the label, right? So, People have a hard enough time reading an FDA-approved label to begin with, right? right. I, you get the summary sheet from your, from your local pharmacy, and that's not the FDA-approved label, right? That could have errors in it in and of itself. But then if you actually are savvy enough, and especially our more veteran parts of our population, you know, have a difficult time online trying to track down the actual FDA-approved label. So I'm a practicing food and drug lawyer. I can go to drugs at FDA. I can pull up a label in 30 seconds. Most people can't do that. And not only that, when they find it, it it's like this incredibly structured document that is really important. But it's, if you're not used to looking at it, you don't know where to go. So, of course, that's the benefit of the box warning. It's right up front. It's in bold text. What I'm trying to get at here is if there's not an accurate communication of the risk-benefit ratio, if there's not that level of, of kind of granular distinctions that should be made, then you actually can do more harm by a class-based black box warning because you've really taken away the distinction for that specific product. And of course, that means that 
you know, you made a comment just a minute ago, Chad, it's always nice to be super safe. Well, you know, you actually don't want to be super safe. You just want to say what the data says, you know, and again, we don't want to get into a whole bunch of political things and all this other stuff, <laughs> but throughout COVID, you know, think about all of the things that folks were, were trying to deploy that were going to, you know, help us through the pandemic. Some of them were, were great, but some of them were, did not actually have the data to suggest that that product would be safe. It wasn't approved products. They were oftentimes could be used off label. All of this stuff, you know, is kind of contrary to how the agency, the FDA, is statutorily mandated to do their job. Their job is to approve products as safe and effective for an intended indication. And their job is to get that label specifically titrated, almost like, you know, your old school radio when you're dialing it in. You've got to dial that label in accurate for patients because turning it too far to one side or the other risks or benefits uh, you know, is really not doing anybody a service. Yeah. You said that that communication piece is what's so important, whether it's clinicians or patients directly. When you create confusion, you create risk. Yeah, Go ahead. That's exactly right. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, Jeremiah, I think a lot of pharmacists appreciate the FDA and appreciate that they're there to ensure the integrity. I love watching like the History Channel, like the food that made America. I've, I've watched I've watched all of them. And, you know, they, they look back going, yeah, people were just, you know, buying stuff out of the gutter and getting, you know, TB and, 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 and all these diseases and and all that kind of stuff. But sometimes the opposite happens. Sometimes the FDA gets blamed for not releasing a drug that and now people are dying over here. And so coming from the perspective of, of just Joe Public, they understand that they're for our protection, but there's also kind of a, a target on the FDA at, at times, maybe unfairly. And I like what you said, how they're, you know, they're just there to, to kind of check all the boxes to make sure that the drug manufacturer is doing everything that, that they said that they would do. So, you know, with that in mind, what's your thoughts on kind of what you would tell pharmacists as far as the FDA's overall kind of responsibility versus their ability to fast track when when you got pharmacists that are bleeding for their patients and are mad because that drug's not released and can't get it out of that clinical trial. They seem too stringent and other times they seem not stringent at all. So what's the overall message you you would like pharmacists to know? Oh that's a great that's a great question. I, I really think I've had you know large national pharmacist organizations as clients in the past and really enjoyed sitting down with pharmacists actually and talking about some of these labeling issues because increasingly I'm seeing the pharmacists and advising our medical product developers, they, they are kind of an increasing tool to really help educate patients. And it seems like to have the time to do that, you know, there's some conversation, of course, about how to make sure that that's compensated because that's a valuable consult time for pharmacists. And, and I would just say, don't take shortcuts. Look at the actual organic FDA-approved label, okay? Don't look at a summary somewhere else. Look at the label for yourself. So when, when my wife, for example, you know, is going through some health challenges, then I will go and I'll look at the actual labels and I'll walk through the, the document myself to make sure that I'm giving myself the independent benefit of that analysis to go on top of what the agency, the FDA has already done and what our physicians have already done. So I just, you know, really encourage the pharmacist to read the label, you know, with, with some level of detail, not a summary. And also the labels are updated. So just make sure also that you're looking at the most recent label, because just because a product is approved, let's just say hypothetically in 2018, that product's label could be updated through a supplemental new drug application 
or a supplemental biologics license application regularly throughout that product's life cycle. So you want to make sure that you're looking at the most recent drug label. And of course, hopefully the whole principle of the, the FDA's role versus the practice of medicine, FDA doesn't practice medicine. That's regulated by our state medical boards. And the whole idea there is that the physician is the learned intermediary that is helping to make risk-benefit calculations. The label is not immutable. The label is what FDA has said. And of course, once they're approved, then you have the ability to use them off-label. And that's where I think the pharmacist also has a role in this care, where if they see something that the physician may have missed compared to both what the patient is being prescribed across the board in terms of the other medications in the cabinet, right? And those risks associated, it, it may be worth a call to the physician's office to clarify, you know, as opposed to just kind of moving forward with whatever's been put into our system. If you guys are Harry Potter fans, you know, it's just uh, my, my kids love Harry Potter. There's that character, Mad-Eye Moody, you know, where he says constant vigilance. And, and that's kind of the approach here, whether you are the doctor, the the prescriber, whether you're the patient. And I would even say for our pharma companies, our clients care deeply about getting this right. And they care deeply as well when the agency in a product developer's mind doesn't get that risk-benefit calculus right. You'll see companies, you know, really aggressively pursue the right risk-benefit, you know, communication on their label, which is a healthy part of the system. Then to follow up on that, Jeremiah, and, and, and again, to come back to some of these box warnings that do create what I will say sounds a little bit like double talk, but I can see it from both sides now. On one hand, you've got, and, and we'll go back to that class, that antipsychotic class. Antipsychotic class increases mortality in dementia-related psychosis. This drug works for, you know, let's say agitation and dementia-related psychosis. If you're using this drug in for dementia-related psychosis, even though it's an antipsychotic, it's okay. Those are the way they're built, and I, and they're they're confusing. How do you work through two issues? One, the pharmacist has to look at that, or the prescriber has to look at that, and feel like if I prescribe this, even though it says I can and I should potentially for a patient with these symptoms, but still telling me I've got this risk. What happens if that risk manifests? And how do I communicate to the patient? Hey, you need to be on this. This is this is going to be good for you, but deal with the fact that if the risk manifests, then they're going to say, well, yeah, but, you know, I had this risk, but, but it said it's okay, but now I had the problem. I mean, that's, yeah. the, that's the back and forth that happens. And I know it's a catch-22 for the FDA, but it just seems like there should be a way that each drug could find their, it's their own label, but their own risk, their own box warning. Yeah. Great series of questions here. And then there's no doubt that FDA's got a very difficult job and, and oftentimes an incredibly thankless job. You know, as you said, Tom, it's darned if you do, darned if you don't. You know, uh, you can think of Adjuhelm, for example, very recent example of an accelerated approval under 21 CFR 314 subpart H, right? You, you want to move these products to the market because there's the potential for significant benefit. And yet there, you do it in a way that is expedited where you essentially can get it to the market sooner, but then there's post-market safety commitments. What does that communicate to the patient in terms of how do I compare it to other products on the market? So that's a challenge. And I think the agency doesn't always get it right there, you know, and the agency doesn't always get it right on, on the label. 
you know, you mentioned the new Plaza label, Chad. I did pull it up while we were talking here, and it's like double. It is double talk. It's it's not drafted. It's got double negatives in the sentence, you know. And any good lawyer will tell you that's never a, a solution for clarity, right? Right. So you know, th- there is a function of of just drafting with clarity here. When I was at the agency, we had this this really incredible program just to reduce the medical jargon to to communicate with consumers, right? Just communicate in a, in a very basic way so that you're clear. But in terms of the question about how to have the prescribers, the pharmacists engaging with patients about whether that risk is going to happen, I mean, coming from the Department of Defense and the U.S. Army, we always talked about risk in terms of the magnitude and probability. You know, we would have these, you know, these quadrants, you know, if you had a high probability of a, of a significant risk, then that's a red box, <laughs> you know. If you had a, a low risk with a low probability of that risk occurring, it was a green box. And I think those conversations with the patients, just to try to help them understand the magnitude of the risk, the probability given the patient's context, and then knowing how to rapidly deal with an adverse event that does emerge, certainly getting emergency medical care or seeing, you know, seeing your physician as a follow-up if you feel, you know, physiologically X, Y, or Z happening, you know, I think those are great, great counsels. Because again, even the summary that you get with your prescription vial from the pharmacist is not the complete label. And I, most people are not going to go and look over, you know, just for fun, Nuplazid's label is a 15-page document here. The label for Xarelto is 21 pages. You know, I referenced COX-2 inhibitors Celebrex's label is 23 pages, all with black box warnings right up front. But, you know, the likelihood that that somebody's going to read all of this, I mean, just to be honest, I'm not super confident, although they should. We we should expect folks to to do this. But the truth is the pharmacists play a huge role in providing this level of care. Yeah, I think you stumbled on something there. I love the idea of talking about probability and magnitude of probability. Um, we should have done that, you know, to your point about COVID, we should have done a lot more of that. I feel like without describing it that way, that is what we do with patients. We talk about things in terms of, hey, here's the risk benefit. It's going to help you in this problem that you're telling me you have that you want solved. But, you know, there's there's always an amount of risk and here's the amount of risk I think it is. And here's my recommendation on whether or not that's worth it. I do think that's a good way to talk to people. Uh, because yeah, I do if I'm, understand if that. I'm thinking straight, then if any patient in that clinical trial had that side effect, they have to report it as a potential side effect. And that they could happen to have a, a cold the same time they were taking that medication. And it's got to get listed. If if I got my story straight, it's got to get listed. But the chances of that actually happening, you know, in, in, in the person taking it, you know, depending on what the side effect is, is, is pretty small, right? Yeah, I actually love, I'll tell you, you know, let's just tell you how big of a, a food and drug law dork I am. But I actually, you know, as I'm looking up medications as a comparison for a client or or maybe there's something, uh, you know, personal for, for our family's medical care, I'll actually go down and look at the summary of the clinical trial data to see which adverse events showed up. And most of the time, there's a table right here in the label that will tell you precisely how these emerged. But it does go back to the larger point I made earlier, which is there's no phase one, two, or three clinical trial that is going to discover every risk. And that's why I think FDA's role in kind of ongoing monitoring of adverse event reporting is so important. The black box warning is, of course, part of 
the FDA approved labeling. But you know, most of you are tracking also the MedWatch system, right? Which is the you know I think it's still uh, FDA form thirty six hundred. You can fill out an adverse event uh, report through MedWatch, and that all of that data goes into the larger kind of post market drug safety monitoring program. You know, uh, of kind of ongoing pharmacovigilance and post market drug safety uh, analysis, and that stuff eventually can what if it's if the data, you know, sometimes we call post-market data dirty data. It's not adequate and well controlled. There's so many variations. You know, anybody can fill out a, a MedWatch form and submit that. And, and so how the agency, the agency controls for how it evaluates its post-market epidemiological data. And they do, I think they do a, a really great job of it. But here's also the challenge. What shows up in a black box warning is usually a result of a ton of post-market safety things and how long are we waiting until that that warning shows up or alternatively how long or how hard is it for the company to remove a warning when it shouldn't apply there's a time lag and i think that's the challenging thing for anybody is that the, it takes a while and adverse event reporting outside of manufacturers of products are not mandatory for patients right so not everybody does physicians report the manufacturer reports but individual patients you know, you hope that they participate in this system, but but not always. So is it fair to say that if you're, you know, some of these drugs make it to market, they're in a particular class that's assigned a black box warning that you're talking about, there is a path for them over time to demonstrate that, hey, we don't have this risk and we can go in and argue that we should take this black box warning away. But that takes a good deal of time. Is, is it fair to say that when we bring drugs to market, we, we do a good job of doing the, I don't know how to say this without making it sound weaker, but like we do a good job of baseline safety data, but it really takes a lot of time to determine the real safety profile of the drug once it's on the market. Is that yeah. fair to say? Yeah. And I think, again, you know, you're, Chad, you're only saying what, what the Food and Drug Administration Amendments Act of 2007 has said it was really a watershed moment for drug safety concerns. Again, having been in the commissioner's office during those years, you know, the COX-2 inhibitor challenges, you know, you had essentially myocardial infarction with the COX-2s, it's a heart attack. Then you had the SSRIs, I think, were, were labeled with a warning for major depressive disorder, but you had, you know, this exponential increase in suicidality associated with that. Congress basically said, you know, FDA, we're giving you more authorities to regulate the product and its labeling, not just at the time of approval, but at regular intervals in the product's post-market life cycle. And that's what the REMS does, right? So the agency can decide that there'll be a black box warning, but it'll potentially be part of a larger risk evaluation and mitigation strategy. So it's the difference between looking at this thing one time and then just relying on the post-market system to trickle up, you know, it, 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 instead of percolating down from the agency, it trickles up to the agency. That was kind of the old model. Here, it's actually now the agency is kind of top down. There's intervals where these holders of new drug applications now have to come in to comply with the risk evaluation and mitigation strategy. And these are intervals for the agency to look at the safety data that is associated with the post-approval use of the product. And do you anticipate that there'll be more? I, I kind of view REMS as a step above. You might get a black box warning. It may be a more serious risk. So we have a REMS program in place. Do you see that being something that we might see more commonly used? 
in the future? Yeah. I mean, it's possible. I think really the the kind of biggest development in the last, you know, I'd say last 10, 15 years has just been the class-wide treatment of products. And I think that pendulum is going to have to swing back to a little bit more of a case-by-case analysis because, you know, again, not every product is going to work for the same patient in the same way. And of course, you know, you can get into a whole lot of other policy arguments here, but that's the unique nature of our regulatory model is that, you know, we, we have products that are approved that will work for, for a very small sliver of patients, but for those patients, it's the only solution set, right? And so the ability to make sure that we're not being overbroad in, in our class black box warnings and class REMS, I think is, is probably the hardest job, but the most necessary job, because again, we want to get back to the risk benefit profile for this particular product for whatever patient a physician and a pharmacist is going to be giving that product to. That's the ultimate goal is to get that decision right. You know, what else is coming down the pike? The agency is typically, and Congress is typically motivated, unfortunately, by where we see real gaps, where we see post-market safety concerns. You know, you hate to, to say it, but if you study the history of the food and drug law, it has been largely driven by you know, public health risks and concerns. And that is what has generated significant changes in this area. Nobody wants to see that. We always want to be ahead of that, of course, but sometimes the food and drug law develops in that way. And, you know, I think the agency, though, with the tools that it has, even with a couple outliers and some warts that are there, has done an incredible job of administering this program. They have every product is assigned to a review division within either the Center for Drug Evaluation and Research or within the Center for Biologics Evaluation and Research. And those reviewers in every subdiscipline within that review division is very specific to, you know, you know, this is a product that is, for example, for cardiovascular health. It goes to a set of specialists in a review division within the Center for Drugs that deals only with those types of products. And I think that's really helpful when your patients can understand that it's not just some guy who was just pulled off of, you know, pulled off of an antipsychotic and is now working on a cardiovascular product. These are people that really eat, sleep, and breathe these subspecialties. And then within each ode, we call them the Office of the Office of New Drugs. And within each ode, there are subspecialties that are brought to bear on product application. So at the time of approval, I can tell you that the FDA's, you know, approval process for new drugs and biologics is incredibly robust. And and what I've seen really emerge since the mid-2000s is an equally robust post-market safety monitoring system, you know, that still has some challenges, but uh, is way better than I think what it was before 2007. So, so Jeremiah, let me ask you, we went through an unprecedented release with the COVID vaccination, talk about super fast track, it's the super fast, but when, when you talk to, you know, some people joking around, I had some friends saying it's not COVID's going to kill us, it's the vaccination, we're all going to turn into zombies, and that's what they're going to want to do. But from, from that unprecedented experience, what lessons did the FDA learn? Obviously, they they were able to fast track something that was needed worldwide, but also it, it ended up being safe and effective, it appears. And, you know, we're a couple of years removed from that. But from from your experience of, of, of being there, what did you guys learn from, from that episode? Yeah, you know, that's a great question, Tom. And you may or may not know, but my partner and I have come to Venable from the Department of Defense, where I led a legal team of 25 attorneys across the country to support Operation Warp Speed 
So my partner and I, we literally negotiated every vaccine contract with Pfizer, Moderna, Sanofi, J&J, AstraZeneca, Novavax, Regeneron, every monoclonal antibody that was used over the last three years and every diagnostic capability that the government deployed. So we really did have a firsthand in-depth view of, of the safety and efficacy data that was going into these applications, but that was FDA's job and there are outstanding professionals at FDA who I think you know, did their job to make sure that those emergency use authorization decisions or ultimate licensure of the products, right, Spike and community under a biologics license application met the threshold for approval. Let's see, just last week, there's, of course, a lot of things. We're in D.C., right? So there's all kinds of political things happening in and around the age, you know, the D.C. area uh, related to COVID right now. But at the end of the day, what I saw the agency do was make rigorous risk-benefit calculations. The EUA standard is, of course, a totality of the circumstances test. Do the known benefits outweigh the known risk given the public health emergency? And then a full approval decision is much different. But I can tell you that the amount of data that went into those EUA decisions actually was pretty, pretty robust and very significant. And a full credit to Peter Marks at the Center for Biologics Evaluation and Research. Not only had he been a real incredible supporter of military medicine in my time at DOD, but he was obviously the person who had to really shepherd us through a lot of that pandemic as the director of the Center for Biologics. But just a, I saw FDA make a very rigorous dedication to their mission, which is to review data for, for safety and efficacy and make risk-benefit calculations, right? There's a couple things that happened where I think FDA even had to say, hey, when we get it wrong, we're going to own it. Think of hydroxychloroquine, for example. You know, that was an EUA that was pulled after a couple months because, you know, the agency realized that perhaps the data wasn't there after additional monitoring. So imperfect, sure, but does the system work by and large? And does the agency, you know, really aim to meet its statutory mandate to protect the, the public health? Absolutely. You know, absolutely. And of course, there's tons of dynamics we could talk about in the COVID, in the COVID conversation mandates and all kinds of other things. But if you set all that stuff aside and you just focus on, you know, FDA's integrity and decision-making, I think the agency actually gets pretty high marks for integrity and in, in making risk-benefit calculations. My experience through COVID, we, we were dealing with remdesivir in February of 2020 for DOD. And we walked for three years and $83 billion of medical R&D where, where the agency is having to make these tough decisions. So from my seat, I thought their their performance was, you know, to their great credit and to the great professionals at the agency. I think people always forget the intense pressure of what we went through, that all those things are happening and they're happening at a speed that because of the emergency, we're required to do it and under an incredible amount of pressure. And, you know, if you if you have Monday morning quarterback anything, you can be like, oh, well, we should have done this differently. We should have done that. Well, that's fine. That, that, that's not the way we were dealing with it. We were dealing with it in an, an absolute public emergency and in a crisis uh, where speed mattered. I have to agree with your comments. I think that the job that they did based on what they were dealing with was was a good job. 
And I, I have so many like colloquialisms that I've used in my career as a pharmacist. You know, my mom used to say, uh, and saccharin has been in the news lately too, but you know, saccharin, you know, causes cancer. I'm like, mom, do you know how many Diet Cokes have been consumed since 1970 that have saccharin in them? Like if it caused cancer, we would, we would have to know it by now. (laughs) (laughs) And and the other one that that you reminded me of in your, in your comments was thalidomide, like thalidomide, was a, a product that we know was, I think, and the true history of thalidomide, we never approved it in this country. So That's we were exactly right. in terms of that. But now, well, it, at least initially, you know, at least in, uh, you know, pre-62, yeah. Yeah. And now we can use it for, but, but we know, obviously, we don't use it in, in people that are can get pregnant or, or might get pregnant, but we do have a use for it in some right. oncology and cancers. So I, I think to your point, it's not an easy job and it's always moving. It's always evolving and changing. And what was we knew for sure today is going to be, maybe we didn't know it, you know, in the future, maybe it's different in the future. So great comments on all that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Nobody knew what an EUA was before 2020, but there were very few of us that uh, had ever worked on an EUA because the DOD, of course, and, Asper Barta works on EUAs, and we deal with FDA's Office of Counterterrorism and Emerging Threats in our in our time at DOD. So the EUA just was not something that was on the radar. But it goes to the larger point, which is, you know, everybody's got a role in educating patients. Not everybody knew what an EUA was versus a licensed product. When I say authorized, that's a different statutory standard under 564 of the FDNC Act than it is under Section 505B1 of the, the FDNC Act, right, which is, you know, our, our full standard for safety and efficacy. Most folks don't know that. Most folks don't aren't tracking the detailed information that is, is made up of a 201 compliant FDA approved label, right? So we all have a role in educating. And where FDA gets it wrong, you know, what, what I can say from my time there and my time, uh, I've been uh, doing this now for a long time, and I can tell you that they're responsive when they get it wrong. You know, and it's incumbent upon prescribers, pharmacists, patients, and of course, regulated industry to speak up when they feel like the agency has not made the right risk-benefit calculus. Well, and I think one of the reasons we did this today and, and why we're doing some more activities around box warnings is because the communication around them has to be clear and there needs to be a broader understanding. One of the things that I stumbled on in research for this program and for a future APEX that we're doing is that there's quite a bit of hesitation on behalf of prescribers to use Paxlovid because of a box warning, because of the box warning. And we all know that we're not out of the woods yet with COVID, particularly in our older adult population, that it is still a risk. And we we have to be able to communicate again. I go back to your comment about the magnitude of risk. Like we have to be able to do that in a way that allows the right people to get the drug at a reasonable amount of risk, while at the same time making sure that you assess that risk, which is what that warning is designed to do. The warning is not designed to scare people from using the product. That is oh, yeah. not. Yeah. So I'm really happy that we got to talk about that today and, and kind of got through some of those things. So, Jeremiah, thanks so much for being on. It's uh, awesome. We're going to tap you in the future for more discussions on box warnings because you're. Oh, no. Oh, no. Well, let's know your deep history, like even more on COVID and then the role you played, because we're we're also thankful for that. And thank you for what you did during the pandemic, because you were. Well, it was a team effort, to be honest. I've never seen it. You know, just all of us have an interest in good government. I can tell you that for those three years, I saw a tremendously complex bureaucracy 
get flat, get well-led, and execute mission in ways that I haven't seen in my long time in and around the federal government. So it was a joy to be a, a small role player in a much larger team trying to help this nation get through something that I it's weird to talk about now. It's just weird to talk about it, but we'll be we'll be thinking about this for the rest of our lives because we all have gone through such a, a real tragic couple of years. But in the same time, there's privilege in the pressure when when you've got to deliver and you've got to perform. And I just you know from regulated industry to the FDA to the Department of Defense to Asper Barta colleagues, you know, really stepping up to the plate to protect patients was incredible to see. Awesome. Thank you. Yep. Tom, Jeremiah, Tom, yeah, thank you guys. Jeremiah, I know you served our country also. I want to thank you for that. And I want to recognize your Michael Jordan poster behind behind you. Oh, I went to pharmacy school up in Chicago. I'm a huge Jordan fan. So I yeah, love you're it. down in North Carolina. Well, I was never on active duty. I want to be really clear. I was uh, the chief of the FDA regulatory law division and I was a, a civilian. But uh, but uh, Ford Dietrich is uh, got my heart and uh, working right down the hall from from green suitors who who have to go all over the world to protect us was literally just a, it's a real passion for me and and our team here at Venable that's what we do we help we help companies who are trying to help the public health and help our national security which ultimately comes down to patients and warfighters being protected and it really is it's more than just a you know cliche for me this is a passion of, of why I do this. Thanks again, Jeremiah. And we had a we had a little bit of a pre-meeting discussion. So let your son know, may the force be with you as well. All right. Absolutely. May the force be with you also. <laughs> and we'll see everybody <laughs> next time on the Our Experience podcast. Thanks, everybody.